Should have saved like the conversation about like your recent film stuff for now. Oh, that would have been good. It's a shame, really, that every time we meet, we have a lot of really good friend time. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. Friend no content. friends, only content. <laughs> friend content, as Sarah once described it. Friend <laughs> Is this friend content? <laughs> are, we, are we friending now? <laughs> Is friending time over? Recording time now? <laughs> yeah, my schedule says we can friend for another three more minutes. That's good. The great thing about podcasting is it turns all your friends into colleagues. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love I, I love, love not just so having much. normal friends anymore. And when you share your podcast at work, it turns all of your colleagues into strangers. to Jen and the Film Critic, a Screen Mayhem co- podcast. My name's Jen Blundell, and with me, as always, is my film critic, Paul Salt. Say hello, Paul Salt. I'm going to burgle your turts. Yay! <laughs> oh, well, welcome to some classic friend content. Oh, um, that could be the name of this podcast. Classic friend content. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the rival one maybe the patreon we could fill it with the classic friend content. classic friend content yeah, yeah. it's just That'd us hanging out yeah I just, that's just where i start sneakily recording every single interaction we ever have just in case it's comedy <laughs> gold and i can make money out of it most of it is me crying but yeah. you've yeah. got to get through that in order but you to tell some um... good jokes when you're crying yeah you're really <laughs> funny when you cry paul that's true it's the source of all my power yeah it's just to be absolutely devastated it works for me. I'm rich. Um, <laughs> Paul, what films are we talking about today? How many? Oh. Let's start with the the classic question that everyone's hot on everyone's lips. How many films? How let's many films to today, Paul? Let's, get, let's <laughs> come to that. Because as a matter of fact, this is no regular episode oh, of no, Jen that's and the Film Critic. This is Jen and the Lift Critic. <laughs> Jen and the Lift Critic. The Lift of you got to make sure you pronounce both. Mm, the Lift. Yeah. Just with sustain. The mm. Lift. Sustain rather not disdain. Disdain, also disdain. <laughs> also di- lust. Uh, yes, here we are again at the London Film Festival. Uh, my first festival with a press accreditation, but no Trisha Tuttle. Aww. Aww. I Aww. got my first accreditation the first year she was festival director, but now she's gone and we've got Christine Matheson, uh, who's taken over the role and was very good, uh, did really good intros and stuff, but her uh, boot game was boot game. Uh, obviously Not nowhere good near strong. No. Yeah, Trish, Trish and it's... your great boots. Yeah, those great boots. Really good boots. Really difficult. The people yeah. won't understand what we're on about, but she just, I can't explain it. She just wore really good boots all the time. They really were great, different. like, suits they were really good. Really good, like, amazing, like, one, like, power, like, wide leg onesie things, great yeah. colours and patterns with great boots. Ah, <laughs> oh, Trisha. Actually, for one of the press screenings, I was getting my pass and scanning in. And she just came up beside me and also <gasps> scanned in to see the press as a press screening. And I was wow. just like, oh, you're just one of us now. <laughs> uh. 
How the mighty fall, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> you should have just turned to her and been like, not so special now, are you? You want me to put my foot away now? Huh? 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 And then Kirsty Matheson's like, you should. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, miss. Sorry, sorry, Miss Matheson. Sorry, Miss Matheson. Ah, uh, but I'll tell you what. This Kirsty Matheson directed one hell of a festival. Yeah. And that is in spite of the continued actor strike, which means that no acting talent were able to appear formally oh, at the yes, festival. Of course. Uh, wasting my uh, front row ticket for the Jessica Hennick uh, movie that Damn, I specifically wasted. bought in the hopes of getting a good old look at Jessica Hennick. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm part of the problem, folks. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Trisha Tuttle. Um, also, the lack of Odie and Leicester Square for press screenings, which was horrific. Mm. And speaking of horrific, a terrible cough that swept through the fest, oh, uh, no. taking out various volunteers, critics, and I think all of my friends who were at the festival at least one for at least one day, Damn. if not more. There was, st- during the Martin Scorsese screen talk, there were strepsils being passed down the line. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, rough. There is a lot of disease going around. There really is, folks. It's not a good time to be it's... out at a busy film festival. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time of the year. Get yourself a film. Get yourself a virus. Uh, yeah, free virus. Free, free popcorn. Virus. <laughs> Not me, though. My big disruption this year was the widescreen weekend, which saw me out of the city for a four <gasps> entire days during the second week of press screenings. Paul came to the north. I came to the north. It was a fascinating place. I liked the way that it was impossible to get to any sort of grocery store after 11. Yeah. Who would need to, though? It's after 11. People who are in cinemas for the entire waking <laughs> hours, Jen. I think that's a you problem, Paul. <laughs> oh, but I'm a London boy. I need to be able to buy things off of threatening people at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need that. Yeah. I need it for my well-being. Consequently, I only saw bah, 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 27 films to talk about today. What? For your whole London Film Festival? Yeah, whole thing. Wow, that's like half of some of your past Yes, it is. Records. It's 10 films down from last year, and my overall record was 50, which was in like 2019. So That's a lot. I'm glad we're not doing 50. I'm glad we're not doing 50. Are we doing all 27 in detail? <laughs> Varied detail, depending on how much I have okay. to say. We're going to go fast. We're going to be Sonic okay. here. We're going to go fast. <laughs> sure, sure, uh, sure, sure. Lots to get through. And rather than go dryly chronologically through my frenzied experience of the festival, I thought we might go worst to best. Ooh, I thought you were going to do <laughs> themes. I thought you were going to pair them oh, all no. off again. Oh, that was fun, wasn't it? When I had yeah, the energy to do that. Yeah, I did enjoy that. that. Yeah, I'll try and do it again for uh, the regular episode. But here yeah. it's just a good old worst to best. Okay, And I cool. will say... I did miss the two infamously bad movies at the festival, which were Foe, which gets uh-huh. released this month. So hopefully okay. I'll have that for you at the, in the next uh, Gender Film Critic. And The Pool Man, which is Chris Pine's directorial debut. Oh. And it's apparently really bad. So oh. yeah, I'll catch up with that when I can. Okay. <laughs> Look forward to hearing about those in future. <laughs> in a future cast. But we start with Cobweb. Uh, Cobweb is not to be mistaken with the horror movie of the same name that we oh, reviewed I thought, okay, last yeah, month. I d- yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> different movie. This is, yeah, this is a uh, South Korean film. Uh-huh. Um, basically, it's about a director played by Song Kang-ho mm-hmm. from uh, Parasite um, oh, yeah. and uh, Broker. And he wants to remake the ending of his latest film, convinced that doing so will make the film his masterpiece. Uh, denied permission to shoot the scenes, he decides to lie and then lock the cast and crew in a warehouse until he can complete Cobweb. Yes. 
Now, the fact that this was the worst film I saw at the festival bodes very well for the festival, I think. Because it was basically just underwhelming. It has a fun premise, but it's trying really hard to be madcap. Mm-hmm. You know, it to introduce chaotic elements and lots of different motives and characters and have them crash into each other and have the whole thing become a farce. Yeah. But it doesn't it doesn't quite have the rhythm for it and it just feels a bit forced and inauthentic. Um San Kang Ho is great, as always, and director Kim Ji Woon is fine, but it doesn't have the pace or imagination to achieve what it sets out to do. Mm. You know, also if you're making a movie about movie making, you're setting yourself up against some pretty stiff yeah comparisons um day for night being the most obvious but you know also uh christy matheson festival director Mm -hmm. introduced the film and said it had many layers it actually really does and it struggles to have two because you've got (laughs) the events of the film you're watching and you've got the events of the behind the scenes and they don't relate in a very satisfactory way Mm. so yeah it's 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 the worst effect it's just two stars for me i just didn't i wasn't impressed by it not too bad and that brings us on to probably... The, oh, wow. That was... It, gosh, that was speedy. I know, right? Oh, We're going to <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll do the two two stars because I only have two two stars. And the oh, other okay. one... Two two two. Two two I two. only have two two. I only have Desmond two twos. And mm. just a Desmond for you here. Just a Desmond. And just a Des. <laughs> and this one is fingernails. Oh. In the near future, there's a special technology that can apparently genuinely tell if you are really in love. Each member of the couple simply tears out a fingernail, puts it in the machine, and it will give you a reading of either 100%, you're in love, 0%, you're not in love, or 50%, one of you is in love, but the machine won't be able to tell you which one it is. Okay. Jesse Buckley's Anna is one of the lucky few who have received a 100% result with her boyfriend, with whom she enjoys a steady, if somewhat unglamorous relationship. She is, however, obsessed with this clinic that purports to improve the chances of people who want to take the test, um, an option that her um, boyfriend refused to take. Uh, There, she meets Riz Ahmed and begins to develop an attraction, which is uh, Mm. complicated because she's 100%, so what's going on there? Mm. Now, this is just such a disappointing film because for the first two acts, and I I saw this with Katie and she agreed, we were thinking this might be one of our favorite films of the year. Oh, no. We loved it at first. It was this surreal Michel Gondry meets Yorgos Lanthimos kind of feel with the stilted dialogue and the old-fashioned sort of... um, tech uh, it's hard to ex- uh, describe anyone who saw the science of sleep it's similar sort of technology to that it just looks very homemade like it's made out of tinfoil <laughs> and such and it's very cute and it felt like a fun throwback to the high concept sci-fi romance movies of the early noughties sort of kaufman-esque then it runs out of steam then it meanders and then it does the worst thing it could do it becomes obvious oh yeah and then the Q&A with the director in which he riled against the idea of dating apps just made me appreciate all the more that this was not true love, merely a passing fancy. So the lobster, this is not. It's just two stars. Damn. Yeah, that sounds like a very interesting premise. And right. like you could have done something really fun with that. But And they did. They did for the first two acts. It just mm. Maybe if you end it at the point when the second test is taken, people will understand. Um, mm. Maybe it's a great little film but it just i don't know now that i look at it it just it, it, it reminds me of that darren aronofsky film mother mm. you know mother where it's like mother well it's just it's so mysterious and strange mm. and you think oh what's it all about and then somebody points out that it is just the bible told from the perspective of mother earth and yeah. you think oh you're right suddenly everything feels really explicable yeah 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 it's very yeah, the magic's gone obvious. the magic's mm. gone that's a shame. Uh, yeah. But hey, 
those are the two worst films of the festival, which okay. isn't too bad going. Why? Just a two-two for you this year, Trish. Oh, it's not Trish. Trish. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> Trish will be devastated by this news. I don't think I, I'm trying to think of like the worst film I've seen in previous years. There've been a couple I've been very underwhelmed by, but have you seen any real thing. stinkers though? Anything you'd have actually given <sighs> one star to? One star. Oh, no, my mother has. My uh, mother picked a movie called Make Me Up in like 2017 okay. and she hated it. Oh, no. <laughs> and she still brings it up. Damn. <laughs> I thought it was all right. It had some interesting ideas, but she hated it was it. not. Uh, the program sometimes can be a little generous when it describes mm. things. Um, mm, yeah. And yeah, it was not what she was expecting. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can be generous. Sometimes it's taste, a matter of taste, isn't it? But sometimes well, exactly. it's just a little... Um... Yeah, this was a little too removed from reality, I think, for her. Mm. Anywho, now we come to memory. 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 Or memory. Any other memories? I mean, it's just those two. Uh, I think memory. there's one in Cabaret that goes, memory, 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 Memory. Mexican director <laughs> Michel Franco or Mikel, how would you do it? Spanish. M I C H E L. Mikel. Mikel. Michel. Mikel. I don't know. I like Mikel. I don't I like know. That. Mikel. I'm gonna name him Mikel. If you're listening, I've named you. Uh, Mexican director <laughs> Mikel Franco directs this uh this American drama film about a woman played by Jessica Chastain who is agoraphobic and very protective of her daughter, a situation that is complicated when a man follows her home one day. His Uh-oh. name is Saul, he's played by Peter Sarsgaard, and it turns mm. out he's actually experiencing dementia and potentially mm. mistook uh Chastain for his wife. However, she believes that they have an altogether different prior relationship that he seems to not remember. So I might feel differently about this on subsequent rewatches because it was a pleasant enough watch, perhaps too pleasant. It has some very transgressive portrayals of people experiencing dementia as people capable of love and sexual relationships Mm. and has some very challenging things to say about the nature of family and yes, indeed, memory. Um, It is quite melodramatic, though, veering into silly in times, mm. and perhaps also a little too cosy. So it's well made, well acted, especially Sarsgaard, who really moves away from the cliched kind of portrayal of dementia to offer something really quite sweet and affecting. And you just think, oh God, maybe if dementia was just like that, it wouldn't be mm. so terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just about stays on the right side of sentimental, uh, but it's not terribly engaging. So it's just three stars. But again, maybe subsequent rewatches will improve that. It just felt a little underwhelming on first impressions. Okay. Yeah. 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 Fair. Sweet enough. But it yeah, felt it, it felt very targeted but... as well. Mm, you know, uh, it felt very. Your mom. I, I hate the term. Uh, yes, your mum. But I hate the term Oscar bait. But uh, there was yeah. there was that feeling as well of sort of let's do this movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah. You, it's oh, yeah. <laughs> I can see it. You could see it. It's a bit. I can see it. I haven't seen the film, but I can see that, and I'm going to judge it immediately anyway. That's fair enough. You know, the first thing I heard one of my fellow critics saying back mm. in 2017 when I first got accreditation, first year at Trish Tuttle's uh, film festival, oh. and I don't blame her for this at all. Um, <laughs> there was a critic behind me uh, who just said, "No, nah, but Dunkirk is Oscar bait. I haven't seen it, but it is Oscar bait." <laughs> Wow. Wow. And that was Peter Bradshaw. No, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's a sickening bunch. Yeah. You disgust me, Paul. 
<laughs> it's it's true. I'm part of the problem. Speaking you of are. which, I'll tell you who else is part of the problem. The Goldman case. The Goldman case? Yes, this is a dramatised account of the real trial of Pierre Goldman, who was a French left-wing revolutionary who was accused of having murdered two people in a pharmacy robbery. Oh, never heard of yes. this. Yeah, never it's interesting. It's an interesting case, which um, he then claimed that his arrest was actually due to political motivation because mm-hmm. of his uh, associations and also anti-Semitism because he was Jewish. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating case, and you know, with an extraordinary man at the centre of it. Um, but I actually felt the film was held back by the deliberately limited scope because mm. th- what they do is they never leave the courtroom where the trial is set. You know, ah. we're set entirely in this courtroom, so it's during the whole St. Omer kind of thing, but it's sure. less compelling. Um, you know, except for a brief uh, intro in the defense lawyer's office, which establishes what a tough character he is, and some sequences set within the consultation room. There's a lot to say about this, but it's because it's all very specifically tied up in this court case. What we end up hearing is we have moments of searing political commentary that have never been more relevant and actually elicited the odd whoop from the crowd I was in, especially regarding racism in the police force, peppered into a narrative that is primarily interested in the minutiae of the actual case, and it's not that interesting. Basically, a succession of witnesses are brought on and are all dismissed the same way because their memories are incomplete or they're prejudiced against Jews and basically Mm. just identified him because he looks Jewish, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not, you know, a masterful sort of 12 angry men style twist, you know, you couldn't have done this, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's just fairly straightforward. Um, Oh, I'm going to struggle with this name. Arie, uh, Warthalter is fabulous as Goldman. And the film comes alive when he starts riding against the system, when he starts just, you know, savaging the whole cool. place but it left me wanting more so it's just three stars just looking him up yeah what? the goldman case aria oh he's belgian aria aria yeah. aria Waltalter. aria Waltalter. aria so is that flemish because it sounds vaguely germanic yeah i don't know i don't want to make I don't announcements know. about belgians <laughs> <laughs> i'm there i'm there in a couple of weeks i'll find out i'll ask yes, you will. <laughs> definitely go around being like hey are you flemish or uh the other one the other one <laughs> the other one Wallonian. Uh, bonjour, bonjour. Je m'appelle, and i die yeah <laughs> oh. i think you're going to a french bit aren't you no, I think I'm going to a Flemish bit. Oh, are you? I think I read it, Bruges. I think I read "Don't speak mm. French there." Ah, but Which no, don't speak French there, Paul Salt. <laughs> Just <laughs> you specifically. Yeah, don't try this. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Uh, then we have Sam Sarah. Oh yes, my birthday film at the BFI IMAX. Ah. Yeah, in Laos, mm-hmm. Laos. 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 I have always fudged the name of that country <laughs> because I don't know how to pronounce it. Just move I, past it quick and hope no one my, notices. I, in my head, pronounce it Laos. 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 That sounds good. Um, in Laos, a old woman dies and her soul travels through the afterlife and is reincarnated in Zanzibar as a baby goat. Oh, Okay, yeah. not where I thought that was going. Cool. <laughs> That's basically the entire film. Uh, the director, uh, <laughs> Louis Patino, very deliberately pl- uh, paces this film, which is mostly concerned with like day-to-day depictions of life in both places. We spend mm. a long time in Laos with the, uh, I'm just going to say it differently each time, yeah, that's with great. the monks. Good works for me. 
I'll get it right. One of them. Um, <laughs> scatter sh- shot, scatter gun approach, and I, I like exactly. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we spend a long time there with the monks as they meditate and sort of, you know, and and live their daily lives, and then we spend a lot of time after the sort of death sequence in Zanzibar with the seaweed farms and the various um, mm. attempts to teach kids um, sort of what various animals are, which is very cute. Um, gorgeous sequences that don't quite hold up to the projection of the BFI IMAX screen. It was a bit grainy projected on a screen that big. Uh, um, okay. Slightly grainy. But what justified it being placed in that venue was the central set piece. After our older woman dies, text comes on the screen explaining that she knows the way to the next life and that we can join her, but we must close our eyes. Oh. The audience are instructed to close their eyes in the cinema and not to open them again until they hear silence. So the whole room goes dark. We close our eyes. We start hearing the deep, glorious sounds of the rainforest with this kind of percussive quality to it. And then light starts to appear, moving, shifting colors that kind of evoke the experience and work with the soundscape. And if you keep, if you open your eyes, you'll just see colors on the screen. But if you close them and experience mm. that color sort of through your eyelids then it's quite the sort of disorienting experience. It's huh. kind of exhilarating and quite immersive. Um, yeah, so it's very unique and quite effective. So um, the film otherwise is quite straightforward, especially, you know, people who have seen this sort of slow cinema before and this kind of thing. But it's, it is it, it is very affecting too, especially that middle set piece, which really does have to be experienced in a cinema. It's not yeah. really going to work in another environment so that that was quite good i enjoyed the, the immediacy and shared experience of the thing so yeah it was good three stars cool yeah i really like the idea of yeah that middle set piece that's very cool i love something weird <laughs> yeah. and inventive like that more importantly though should we listen to how we pronounce this country name oh yes please laos mm. there we go one more time laos laos Here's laos, laos. La- laos. wait i still can't do it Laos. Laos. You know the big pronunciation controversy that has me shaken to the very core at the moment? Go on. Thelma Schoonmaker, the uh, editor of every single one of Martin Scorsese's films, says Scorsese. Scorsese? Yep. Every single time she referred to him, she said Scorsese. So either Thelma has been getting it wrong since Raging Bull in 1980 (laughs) and Marty never corrected her, or the entire world is getting it wrong and Marty hasn't had the heart to speak up. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Either way. <laughs> Either way. Wow. I think what I read was in Italian, it should be Scorsese. But Americans, before yeah. I guess Martin Scorsese was a thing, would say Scorsese. But then that's really weird that Thelma Fel- Schoonmaker would say that. Ah, yeah. Very odd. Very knows, odd situation. Eh? Who knows? But I'm going to say Scorsese and, pre- and put a lot of shade on people who continue no, to say Scorsese. <laughs> it's pronounced Bruschetta. <laughs> Martin Bruschetta. Martin Buschetta, uh, catch him in your locust in your local Italian restaurant. Yeah, and also you'll you might get a, a glimpse of um, John Le Carre. I don't know. This is uh, <laughs> we're we're out of the, we're in the weeds now. This is the Pigeon Tunnel. <laughs> the Pigeon Tunnel. The Pigeon Tunnel. Documentary filmmaker Errol Morris. Um, yeah, it's his documentary about uh, David Cornwell, uh, or as he's known, the author John Le Carre. Ah, okay. I see. Yeah. I see the connection now. I get it's it. It's funny kind... now. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an adaptation of his own memoir uh, uh-huh. that was released before his death, but is uh, sort of very f- uh, much consists of interviews with the man. Okay. In which his charm and sort of charisma does come across. 
Mm. very in great abundance uh the film very openly addresses the fact that a lot has been made of cornwell's private life especially his sexual escapades which are said to have had a big impact on his career and that the carry you know he doesn't really want to engage with that and he says so he's Mm. more interested in the usual two topics that most of his books are about which is his troubled relationship with his father who was a massive con man and his brief relatively unsuccessful stint in the intelligence services in which he portrayed a young man who was Mm. also who was um sort of involved in some anarchist uh, or communist activities, I forget which. Um, so he recounts stories from his life and talks about his work, and together they explore concepts of loyalty, spying, betrayal, and power. And that is perhaps the best and most insightful part of the film, when they talk about the nature of wanting to be a traitor. Mm. And they look at the Kim Philby situation quite a bit and talk about what what that was and what maybe caused that and what Kim Philby's motive may have been. Um and this kind of addictive feeling of being able to make choices, you know, mm. and the idea that these people were bred for success and kind of reached the top and then had nowhere else to go and still wanted to have that feeling of importance. Mm. And so did so by trading state sequences. You know, where does ambition lead when you already get to the top? It's a very interesting idea. So I think one thing that is a little unfortunate in the documentary is Errol Morris's voice, because he is interviewing Le Carre, and Le Carre speaks with this very grand old English accent, mm. barely having to shift his speech in order to impersonate the old Etonian uh, spymaster that he references, whilst Morris has this blunt, loud, older American voice that just mm-hmm. steamrolls over the nuance that's being built, and that is a little bit telling of the film, because the film is quite showy and quite fancy with mm. its re- reenactments and that kind of thing. Um, and all the reenactments and probing questions are really just uncovering the story that anybody who's read Le Carre's books probably already knows. Um, the great merit of it is the chance to see, you know, David Cornwell, John Le Carre talk about his life and the ruminations on the nature of keeping secrets as a public figure. But whether it earns its status as like a cinematic film, I'm less sure about. So it's three stars. Okay, fair enough. Mm. Yeah, interesting. How and many um, how many Le Carre's have you read? Oh god, loads of them. I've read um, yeah. The Spy Came In From The Cold, Perfect Spy, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Like, my mother is <laughs> spy, 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 spy. <laughs> spy, 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 spy. spy Mr. Spy. Spy. <laughs> spy the book. <laughs> uh, my mother is a huge Le Carre fan. Uh, okay. Which is yeah. very interesting because she openly acknowledges that he is really a bit of a misogynist and doesn't oh, know yeah. how to write women. <laughs> but nah, she accepts but that. It could still be really fun books, can't yeah. <laughs> She just loves loves the whole spying thing. Yeah, it's fun. I've only read a couple. That's why I oh, ask. Yeah. Um, uh, I know I've read Spy Who Came In From The Cold. That's and great. Another one. <laughs> uh, another one. Uh, I think it was called Spy. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Beautiful. no, uh, yeah. Fun. Fun yeah. entertaining books. They are fun entertaining books. And it's a good film. It's it's interesting enough. Okay. Um, but yeah, I would just highly recommend people read A Perfect Spy. And you'll get more insight into the carrier as a man i think or at least Mm. similar insight but yeah that's it for the three stars everything else i have (gasps) to talk about is four or five because everything else i have to talk about is interesting provocative or just genuinely enjoyable so yeah unfortunately this podcast is now just going to become a lot of gushing (laughs) (laughs) froth froth for me paul but hey what film was the best of the fest stay tuned find out in three hours time yeah (laughs) (laughs) we move on to blackbird blackbird blackberry so i like many people at the lff saw this because the saltburn uh, press screenings were full okay and just clambered for the next thing but was was that the one about the the school the fancy prep yes that was the new film by emerald fennell 
yeah. uh, of uh, Promising a Woman fame. So mm-hmm. that press screening was massively underestimated uh, in terms of how sure. many people would show up. I was seven yeah. people away from getting in. So, oh. but I don't regret it. I don't regret Blackbird, Blackbird, Blackberry. Uh, because, yeah, it was a very charming and affecting Georgian film uh, from Aline Ooh, Navri- Navriani uh, mm-hmm. about a 48-year-old woman who staffs a tiny shop in the middle of nowhere. And one day she has a very erotic sexual encounter with a <gasps> delivery driver, uh, which leads to her reflecting upon her decision to live alone and uh, to reconsider how she fits into the community she's a part of, a community she doesn't really like. Oh. <laughs> um, Sounds good. It's really <laughs> I'm on board good. already. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And as someone who has essentially kind of made that decision, at least for now, at the tender age of 35, this was a fairly confronting film about yeah. leaving yourself open to new experiences at all stages of life and trying to manage and find a way of fitting into the community, even if they suck. So, <laughs> brilliant performance from uh, Eka Chavlashvili. I'm going to say Chavlashvili, yeah. uh, who is just monumental, still, but very subtly expressive. And uh, great direction from Navriani. Um, it's just beautifully shot and well-paced and really quite affecting. It's Cool. Yeah, uh, an entirely this like character study, but it's a very rich sense of her world and her identity. And I really enjoyed that. Cool. And very yeah. bold, I like, yeah. unapologetic. I like, the, I like the concept. I like yeah. that idea. Sounds, I'm, yes, this is the first one that I'm... Uh, that seems well I mean to be fair you did pitch them as these are the two stars and here's the three stars yeah, yeah. fine 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 but yeah this hopefully just, um, from here out you'll be tantalised by every single tantalized. one tantalised yeah colour me tantalised oh hello there hello there <laughs> hello there I'll take a saucy Georgian film please mm-hmm, a saucy Georgian mm-hmm. let's get saucy into... Georgian sounds like a cocktail doesn't it oh yeah the saucy Georgian, Georgian. can I have a saucy Georgian please <laughs> but um what no are you for <laughs> Get out of my pub. Um, <laughs> speaking of saucy, oh god, we've got May December. May December. Yes, you're going to hear a lot about this film, I think. Um, okay. Right now, no, not right now, but <laughs> in in the future. Um, this is Todd Haynes, the guy who directed Carol and Dark Waters. Oh yeah. Okay. And this is a slightly inexplicable comedy drama film. I didn't know quite what to expect from going in, and it wrong-footed me quite early. We've got Natalie Portman. Okay who is an actor who is researching her latest role uh, by spending time with the actual woman she's playing. Do you know this? Yes. I read this one in the brochure. I read right. like half of the brochure. Okay. And so far, this is the first one I properly recognize, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's researching a woman uh, called Gracie, played mm. by Julianne Moore. Yes. Gracie is a well-loved figure in the community, but is infamous because she began sexual relations with her eventual husband, present husband, uh, when he was, let's say, very young. And actually, we spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out just how young he is, because they keep just saying what grade he was in. As if everyone's going to know that. And I'm there being like, is that equivalent to years in British school? I still cannot work (laughs) out how American grades work. And I've looked it up so many times. Americans, we don't understand. No one else understands when you say a grade seven. Yeah, You're like, that makes no sense to the rest of the world. So just say the age next time, yeah? Just say the age. (laughs) It takes a long time to piece it together. But nevertheless, because you don't know when this movie's set either. So it's hard to sort of put it together. Nevertheless, yes, it's there and... It is, when you do find out, yes, it's young. <laughs> she, okay. It's based on the uh, real-life sex offender Mary Kay uh, Lutonel uh, and her very fraught story. And Portman's research puts great pressure on the unusual romance between the two, uh, threatening to tear the two apart. 
Early on in this movie, Julianne Moore's character goes to a fridge and there's a very dramatic piano music sting as she announces, I don't think we have enough hot dogs. (laughs) That very much sets the tone for the movie, which gets away with talking about a lot of dark material and very earnestly exploring all sorts of familial relationships and themes of responsibility, consent, control, identity artistic integrity whilst also reminding you of the absurdity of the situation uh with its its humor um it's a psychological thriller where the resting mode is discomfort throughout the entire Mm. thing it's just meant to be uncomfortable and it's very Mm. good at doing that sort of uncomfortable humor it's a film that delights in discomfort and it's in poor taste and knows it without ever crossing any kind of really exploitative line although it gets close there's a couple of Mm. moments because if you think about this rationally, <laughs> Natalie Portman is playing this character. They're casting the person she's playing opposite. <laughs> yeah. It's a very dark <laughs> film, but it's kind of fascinating, incredibly funny, and features two very committed performances from Maureen Portman, both of whom I think are doing career best work here. Cool. So it's a weird step for Todd Haynes, but it's it's that was very the topic good. of it i know they don't make it's... that quite clear in the program i don't think <laughs> maybe it's saying too much I, I don't know but it's it's well worth seeing because yeah. it's fascinating yeah interesting yeah cool good lord <laughs> cool it's very good and it's just the performance that julianne moore gives is just one of absolute not understanding why she might be in the wrong wow like it's just it's a fascinatingly self-obsessed character. It's really, it's wow. really delicious. The whole thing. <laughs> it's quite camp. Quite camp. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. 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 Do you know who else is interesting? Who? Leonard Bernstein. Ah yes. Oh, is this the what's his face? The <gasps> biopic. Yes. Uh, with ah uh, the guy from Limitless. Yes. Yes. Nailed it. <laughs> so the guy the guy from Limitless directs and stars in this biopic of Leonard yes. Bernstein that primarily focuses on his troubled marriage with actor uh, Felicia oop, Montalegri Montalegri troubled mm-hmm. by his erratic moods drug use uh, sexual identity he is gay and eventual Ill- and eventually her illness mm-hmm. uh, the movie has some really exciting visual panache especially in the early sequences that covers their courtship mm-hmm. um yeah, and they, they blend musical theatre conventions to bring the early relationship to sort of vivid life. It's really quite Aww, that's cool. it's quite thrilling. Then as they mature and the relationship grows and becomes more complex and a little bit more grounded in sort of everyday realities, we enjoy this very stately restrained framing that prioritises good blocking in an old Hollywood style to the sort of editing chicanery of the early film. And we get some lovely long shots of sort of, you know, dispute, discord, parties, and of course composing, which are quite extraordinary Mm. because it becomes all about the performance. Yeah, because because that is the two greatest assets, you know, of this film. Those are uh, Bradley Cooper as Bernstein is uncanny he's completely disappeared into the performance and it is extraordinary not only able to offer an impression of the man but bringing him to life with this just these beautiful small moments where he really finds the character and the man you know scenes of him talking with his children or just interacting with strangers or you know fighting or comforting his wife it's just mesmerizing and then you know you have sequences of him conducting music which are also stunning stunning so you really buy into the charisma of the man you understand why people want to be around him and sort of get involved because 
I mean, in particular, once he gets old, once he's got the white hair and he's got the yeah. hairy arms and the kind of liver <laughs> spots and the tan, you just think, oh, God, this guy's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's such a seductive cool. feeling. Some people get really cool, and he, he's definitely one of them. And his voice, oh, my God, that sort of New England accent is just... Mm. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, the makeup effects that he has used have proven controversial, and perhaps rightly so. Getting a big prosthetic nose grafted to your face to play a Jewish man isn't great. Um, and frankly, no. it is unnecessary because the performance is what sells the likeness. No. The prosthetic actually is a little distracting now and then. <laughs> it's like CGI de-aging. You know, the audience yeah. is better at suspending disbelief when the performance is good, and the performance is great here. So I do understand those complaints. Yeah. You don't need an exact likeness. It's fine. Just do the yeah. performance. Anthony Hopkins played Nixon. You know, he doesn't yeah, look exactly. anything like Nixon, but he <laughs> no. did it right. You know, it's yeah. that's what matters. That brings us to Carrie Mulligan, who mm-hmm. absolutely is presented as the heart of the movie. And I believe she mm. is. Her her voice, her wry smile, her soulful eyes. It's a quieter performance. She kind of shrinks so that Cooper can expand. Mm. But so powerful just she's the immovable object that the narrative revolves around you know the the heartbreak of a woman loving a man who is incapable of her loving her in the same way is devastating although in terms of queer representation it is a bit familiar and a little unfortunate you think of the danish girl you know it's you know but to, to boil down their relationship down just to unrequited love between a man and his beard would be a disservice mm. to the real people and actually to this film because actually there's a lot more going on there mm, and it does a great nice. deal to show the love between them oh so cool you know, it's a lot of nuance there so yeah four stars it's great fantastic lovely yeah lovely <laughs> and it's you know it's nice to see a oh he wrote a song about memory as well didn't he um, oh, and, the most uh, beautiful sound I've ever heard. Oh, Bernsey. Memory. Oh, memory. Oh, memory. Oh, memory. Da-da-da-da-da-da, <laughs> memory. Hey, that was, that was another one. one. He did two in the same musical. That's weird. <laughs> it is. He did write. He did I, write West Side Story, right? Yes, he did. Oh, good. Good, 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 good. <laughs> but Bradley Cooper, you're right. Bradley Cooper also did a, a, a memory song. Tell me, memory girl. <laughs> is it hard in this memory world? <laughs> Memory. God, that song is just. There are some songs that buskers really have just ruined. <laughs> For me, it's just Hallelujah. Oh God, it, there must it's be something many. in common. I don't know enough about music, but there must be some like simple chord progression and big Maybe. wailing thing that means they're just the thing that everything does. Yeah. God. Anyway. Moving from a biopic that is um, fraught, but ultimately quite lovely, we move to Priscilla. Priscilla? Priscilla. Sophia Coppola directs this biopic of Priscilla Presley, Mm. covering her entire relationship with Elvis Presley from their early courtship to her decision to leave. I've put on the brink of his Vegas-based downward spiral, but that did take about five years (laughs) to finish. So at the the onset, perhaps. I'm not quite sure the year he ended up in Vegas, but yeah, she left during Vegas. Um, sure. Obviously, it's interesting to contrast the film against Baz Luhrmann's film from last year. Yes. And what you find is something like the difference between Diana, that terrible movie with um, old Naomi Watts. Oh, yeah. And Spencer. Sure. And this is your Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> because whereas Luhrmann's Ler- film followed a fairly straightforward trajectory, albeit in a madcap way with lots of different styles, it's still a traditional you know, rags to riches mm. to ditches kind of story. This film is mostly set in the same location, 
one house, Elvis's house, as Priscilla is left behind and ignored by Elvis as he goes off and romances other women, indulges in various fads, both spiritual and drug-related, and ultimately becomes more and more self-destructive. Uh, Co- Colonel Tom is not in the movie, incidentally. It's just Elvis. What a bet! Gunning in from the, the side of the frame. What a shame. We've got, we got Jim Broadbent back to play the Tom Hanks role. God. <laughs> Uh, the un- the early film plays out in this underplayed psychological thriller as the 24-year-old Elvis courts the 14-year-old Priscilla. We're back oh, on yeah, this. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we're back on it. Back and on. we see him negotiate terms with her parents as he plies her with lavish gifts and a glamorous lifestyle that promises mm. to take her away from the humdrum life that she's struggling to fit into. So this is all very firmly established kind of Coppola territory. Mm. Um, but despite how sinister this film is it's very unjudgmental it kind of just lets it happen and lets you just feel how creepy it is that elvis is having to convince priscilla's parents to let her come out mm. you know sometimes for trips to other places other cities you know it's yeah. it is very sinister without being too overt or just or overtly disturbing it lets the sort of creepiness kind of set, settle in um and there's a great deal of restraint used you know there's very little fireworks there are a couple of big arguments but they're you know very rarely is the actual nature of their relationship questioned um Coppola instead allows the audience to bring their own judgments to a story that is being told very earnestly uh we can see that she's being groomed <laughs> that she's being coerced and plunged into a world she can't possibly hope to understand or escape easily mm-hmm. But uh, Kaylee Spaney's uh, Priscilla is so earnestly enraptured with Elvis and the idea mm. of Elvis that it's hard not to be kind of carried along with her perspective and her girl-like sure. obsession with him and the lifestyle that he offers, but then to absolutely become horrified when the world changes, when he changes, and you just find yourself trapped there in that massive mm. mansion. It's, it's a very deeply subjective film. And a very Coppola experience. Um, and I think it will go down the same way that films like Somewhere or The Virgin Suicides did. Um, it's it's the roaring disappointment of having to live privately in public is what's being portrayed mm. here. And it's... Interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting and engaging. So, cool. yeah. Four stars. How old was Elvis when he died? Now, there's a question. I want to put him in his 40s. But maybe that's... Old. that. Yeah, that actually seems a bit generous. Let's have a look. What, 77 take away 35? Ooh, it's not much. 37? 32? Yeah, I think you're right. 37? Yeah. I can't. 42. 42? Wait. Apparently. 77 take away 35. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to trust you, Wikipedia. 42. Well, you have a... Okay, great. I mean, that's still very young. Hang on, <laughs> he died in Memphis. I thought he died in Vegas. You lied to me, Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> yeah, so somehow I think maybe Baz Luhrmann took some artistic license. Unbelievable, acceptable, unacceptable, unbelievable, un-American, un-American. Really. Only an Australian would do that sort of thing. <laughs> <sighs> well, let's move on to the sort of thing that an American would do, if that American happens to be David Fincher, because he's back. <gasps> Yeah, Mank didn't yeah. count. Fincher is back for the first time since <laughs> Gone Girl. Don't look into it. This is The Killer. Okay. Yeah, a big theatrical, see it in cinemas before Netflix takes it out, folks, thriller film uh, that is doing exactly what Fincher does best, which is taking relatively straightforward narrative material and elevating it with his just immaculate style. Tell you what else is back. Michael Fassbender. <gasps> yeah, he's a deep... Con- 
contemplative assassin uh, who is good at his uh, job. Very methodical in his private rituals and loves monologuing. So far, so familiar. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, a job goes wrong, leading to his employers coming after him. So he has to go after them. And you can absolutely guess the rest of this movie. Um, <laughs> it, it's Again, the plot is totally by the numbers as a revenge story. But my God, is it gorgeous. Fincher's style is one of total immersion. Even the narration, which, while often stating the obvious or doing character work that you think you'd like to quite see, you'd quite like to see just done, you know, in mm. a sort of, uh, what do you call it? Um, Melville style, you know. Sa- Le Samurai, mm. you know, he didn't need any okay. narration to be the coolest guy on earth. The Alain Delon film. But yeah, making explicit what might be letter- better left implicit, it still is just a stylistic device. The sound of Fassbender's voice and his style of humour just becomes a device to help usher you into this world because it's weirdly cosy. <laughs> in spite of everything, you've got this slick camera work, innovative editing, gorgeous music, and well-executed action that just propels you into this dangerous kind of sexy world of assassins you know it's got a bit of a john wick feel to it but much more dialed down stylistically yeah sure (laughs) yeah more grounded (laughs) how dare you slander john wick perfectly realistic having said that it would not be out of place for someone to get killed with with a pencil in this it would just take longer. Okay. All right. As a Steven Soderbergh style approach to it, you know, if anyone's seen Haywire, it's that kind of approach to action. Just all the fights are kind of messy, but still kind of gorgeous. It's just, mm. I don't know, it's a world that is full of some really fun cameos. Uh, particularly Tilda Swinton is very good in this. It's not too much of a spoiler because we do get a weird TV style opening credit sequence that breaks down who's in it. Um, but yeah, each character, each the movie is broken into chapters that are kind of themed mm. around these individual performances and they're just yeah wonderful but Ooh. fassbender is the constant he's the consistent one and he's charming smarmy charismatic despicable great. everything you everything, want everything he's great at everything he's great at everything you want from a philip marlowe style down on his luck you know professional um yeah. And I think that is the only thing that makes these kind of Liam Neeson and Taken style things work is a big dash of self-deprecating humor. And mm. this film has that in spades. So yeah, it's four stars. It's great. Great. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fun. It's really fun. Yeah. I, I remember that one from the program. Yeah. yeah. It was one of the big galas and it was just, mm. yeah. It, it'll be out very soon. But if if, can, if possible, I would recommend seeing it at the cinema because cool. it's just a cool yeah. place to be. <laughs> yeah it's nice to see Fastbender doing something good again oh god it's been a long time i was listening the other day to your uh why was i i was thinking no that was it i was watching i was thinking about your episode because i was watching a youtube video about the snowman mm. one of the uh is it dan olsen did a video about the oh snowman yes he did editing yeah. in it yes so i was thinking about your uh your episode <laughs> you did and just how bad that film sounded and then watching <laughs> yes, that was his quite a... video do some of the breakdowns of how it had been edited together and things was just yes. like wow yeah that sounds difficult although to watch. i'm pretty sure we caught something that dan missed regarding <gasps> how those sequences were massacred and as much yeah. as we're pretty sure they just restaged one of the murders so yeah we, uh... we've, you'll hear that in the episode if you go back and listen and also one good thing <laughs> listen to us laughing an awful lot at the fact that the main character's name is harry hole Harry Hole. <laughs> Waves yeah. Harry Hole at him. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah, that's why I remembered it so much. What a name. What a name. What a name. What a hey, name. How good for you, you Fassbender. Good, good for you, you Fassbender. Good old Bender. And I'm glad you're back. Fassing away. Now, 
speaking of Fassbender, actually, because um, one of his yeah. early great roles was uh, Hunger, directed by Steve McQueen. And Steve McQueen. I you were going to say Magneto. <laughs> one of his early roles was as Stephen Magneto. <laughs> and no, Steve McQueen has directed a new film called Occupied City, which is this okay. epic documentary about the Nazi occupation of Amsterdam uh, from oh, yes. 1940 to 1945. Uh, and the film is based on Bianca Sigler's uh, book of the same name. Uh, the film is basically extracts of that book being read aloud as we watch footage of modern Amsterdam um, as he moves from such events as the announcement of quarantine measures to various protests, some good, some bad, finally arriving at the Just Stop Oil protests. But it's not just big events. For the most part, we're seeing day-to-day life in the places that the book describes. So the narrative is episodic, focusing on different people who lived in Amsterdam and came afoul of the Nazis in different ways, and were in various ways victimised by the Nazi system that was put in place. So the effect is to explore the concept of spaces. We see cupboards where Jews hid, or squares where public executions were staged, but we all there's no archival footage. We only see it now. Hmm. We only see life modern life in Amsterdam as, you know, children play, families go around, as police crack down on protesters, um, you know, as drunken people stagger around. We're hearing all of these stories about what happened during the war. Um, you know, we see schools that are used as processing centers and offices that were once, you know, illegal newspaper kind of production places. Mm. And it has this tremendous runtime of four and a half hours. Ooh, okay. <laughs> it's a stiff, <laughs> it's a stiff old drink of water, but it allows you to really occupy mm. this city and get a sense of the geographical memory that it holds and the terrible potential that is ever present for the past to repeat itself. Uh, the book is read aloud by Melanie Hyams who is the narrator, and her voice has this mesmerizing quality to it. Very simple, and seemingly without too much expression, but so poignant. The way she reads it, it just there's something about how bluntly she reports the atrocities and the injustices of the book. Um, It just brings it all to terrible life. It's just an essential part of the soundtrack, is Melanie Hyam's voice. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, four stars. It's It's a tough watch. It's a big thing. But yeah. I highly recommend it. It has, just without showing anything explicit, it absolutely gets across the horrors of of the Nazi occupation. Um, and cool. also just a fascinating study of how that relates to modern, to modern Amsterdam. Cool, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Sounds very interesting. It really was. Whew! <laughs> I think we're getting there. Paul? I think we're doing, Paul? I think we're past halfway. <gasps> Wowie. I've got a point that's... where my notes specifically say how many films are left, but that's a ways away yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're on 15 left. Almost a normal episode's amount. Oh, God. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, but the other one has to do all the work here. <laughs> I get to sit back and be like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> Let's talk about The Boy and the Heron. The Boy and the Heron. Hayao Miyazaki's latest final film. <laughs> Um, his final film his latest last job ever his latest... don't drag me out for a time I promise I won't do another <laughs> then one day the Ghibli people show up at his door you son of a let me get him back in <laughs> this is his first since the wind rises ten years ago and the story concerns a young boy whose mother has died in a hospital fire horrible you know big sequence oh. at the beginning uh, he has moved with his father to a new home uh, with a new mum Uh, And he's not excited about either. His situation is then disrupted when he starts to see a mysterious grey heron, which has mischievous intent, uh, leading him into a whole new world of magic, nature, 
and good stuff. <laughs> Other <laughs> I things. didn't have a third and, thing. And also magic. Danger. There you go. Lots of danger. There we go. There's plenty danger. of danger. Great. There's Fantastic. so much danger. The but classic also... triple. <laughs> it's it's so much of what you'd expect and hope for from Miyazaki and from Ghibli. It's it's gorgeous animation, a really absorbing, colourful world that is heartbreaking mm. and poignant, very playful, very silly, but also very Oh, absolutely grounded in real experience. Um, a, a really tender, introspective journey into grief, specifically, which just mm. feels incredibly poignant at this stage. And to have Miyazaki still make movies about boyhood and to have it still resonate so much is kind of heartbreaking and beautiful. Um, but it's also more grotesque and yeah, more grotesque than a lot of previous Miyazakis. He's always had a talent mm. for the upsetting, but there's something very <laughs> disturbingly Satoshi Kon esque. Um, about the horror elements in this one, particularly concerning the titular Heron, who is a kind of horrific creation once he starts revealing himself. Um, But the mix feels entirely natural. It's a slightly darker story, but not in the same melancholy way that Izao Takahata would explore darkness in his films. It's unmistakably whimsical and fanciful and Miyazaki. You know, when you have... Mm. I try to remember, there's a big race of people, guards, who are all fish... I want to say, no, they're not fish. They're, are they frogs? I can't remember, but they're very funny um, mm-hmm. in their nature. And it's a, it's it's got that sense of uh, kitsch and cuteness. And okay. yeah, it's a very beautiful swan song if it does actually turn out to be that this time. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm giving it four stars. It was really quite enchanting and I look forward to having it be a part because that's what it feels like. It feels like a new chapter in an overall thing that, yeah, means a lot to a lot of people cool. and I look forward to it being a part of that wonderful very nice yeah now, still haven't watched a Ghibli film I still need to show you a Ghibli film that's your yeah, that's your update on Ghibli Ghibli status Ghibli status <laughs> Ghibli still status, zero, zero. <laughs> still zero we'll get there we day. will get there one oh, day yeah. you're gonna have to pin me down the staples <laughs> have to clockwork orange you to get you to watch yeah. a Ghibli film. <laughs> yeah, I refuse. I'll just buy the merchandise. Why? <laughs> Never you mind. Oh, tell you what, though, we've got something a little less charming now. Oh, yay. We haven't had a horror yet. Well, Red Rooms. Is this a horror? Kind of. Yeah, yeah, I think you could describe it as a horror. This is French-Canadian film... Uh... Oh, horror. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't think I've seen a French-Canadian film before. Like, it, everyone's speaking oh, French. Yeah. It's, Can- it's Canada. It's very strange. Um, it's directed by Pascal Plant. <laughs> oh, crazy. It's crazy. crazy it's so weird. Um, a mysterious woman attends the trial of a vicious serial killer who has graphically killed three young teenage girls and broadcast their torment and deaths to the dark web. Uh, whilst attending the trial, she meets another young woman who has an unhealthy obsession with the supposed killer, believing him to be innocent. And so together they attend the trial and yeah, her intentions become the focus of the film. This is a deeply menacing psychological thriller the trial is very disturbing where you're constantly wondering how much you're going to see with Mm. a real focus on the impact of the proceedings on the family of the victims as they are forced to relive their child's horrible final moments and then when we're outside the courtroom uh juliette garippi uh plays the Mm -hmm. lead with a chilly detachment we're left guessing right up to the final moment what her intentions are and what she's getting out of all this uh whilst meanwhile uh the other lead uh laurie babin uh is tragic as the lost young woman desperate to find some kind of connection 
Um, it's not an explicit film, but it's very disturbing for the human behavior it portrays. Uh, it's all about voyeurism and the ethics around spectacle and the harmful effects of just looking. So, yeah, it's it, it's, it's really quite absorbing and fascinating. It's still four stars, um, but yeah, it's fascinating. Wow. Not sure I want to watch this one. <laughs> no, this might be the first of the four stars I might say a no, no No, to. it's funny because it's not explicit, but it just... Yeah, yeah it, creepy. It, it Sounds, makes you consider ugh. it. It makes you think about yeah. it. It makes you think about the kind of people on the dark web, the kind of stuff out there. I will yeah. say, way more effective than the similar, but way less... Rachel is Missing is a similar film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is just horrible and mean-spirited and uh, nihilistic. Mm. This film takes a much more humane approach mm-hmm. and a much more um, artful approach in a way that I think is more effective in being horrible okay. because it's happening in a world that you can recognize as our own and is upsetting and isn't just mean-spirited for the sake of it. Mm. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah, there's some real big moments in there that will sort of get a reaction out of the crowd it certainly did for mine gasps wow. audible gasps Oof. yeah Ugh. but Gosh. again it's just it's just from the discomfort of what's happening yeah <laughs> we're moving into a whole new area now <gasps> every single film i have left to talk about gets five stars and that's no. 13 wowie this either says something wonderful about the, the festival something terrible about my standards or something very critical about the star rating system. I think it says you chose well. Well, I chose relatively well, I think, but the, it was well curated. Um, yeah, all 13 of No, all of the credit these, goes to you. <laughs> all 13 of these, I think, are going to make my year-end list. I love wow. all of these. I'd be very surprised if they don't. Uh, but it's been a hell of a year, to be fair. It's been yeah. a big year for cinema, this one. I think it's going to go down for me as one of yeah, the greats. Yeah, it has. And we start with Fallen Leaves. Uh-huh. Oh, no. wait. It's ringing a bell. Oh, oh, oh. It's ringing a bell. No. No. It's finish. Oh. Finish. Oh, um. no. Continue. I'm actually in the process of familiarizing myself more with the work of Aki Kurismaki, the director, but <laughs> I've seen enough now to know that this is all fairly typical of his work mm. uh, and that he has returned Ozu-like uh, to these same themes and to these two archetypal characters of unemployed lovers frustrated by the lack of opportunity around them because essentially we're in Finland. We've got two characters one of whom is has just been fired from a supermarket job, and the other is, uh, I think, oh, what is it that gets him fired? I think he's just got a bit of a temper on him, so he keeps getting into fights. Sure. Um, and so they find each other. They find each other in an odd way at a karaoke bar. Okay. Um, and, yeah, it's just about their sort of quest to find each other and you know, desperately trying to improve their lot. Um, very much like Drifting Clouds. Uh, so... Yeah, perhaps what's new, or at least took me by surprise from having watched some of his other work, is just how funny this film is. This <laughs> rich, deadpan humour that made me think of like Roy Anderson, although Roy Anderson, I imagine, is a is a subsequent development in uh, Scandinavian cinema to Kurosaki. Um, it really drives home the humanity of the work. You know, Kurosaki has such a deep love for his characters, and I think the humour really amplifies that. Because yeah. you take that out, you're looking at something vaguely Soviet in its in its nature, sure. sort of you know proletariat suffers in yeah. terrible mm. 
capitalist system. <laughs> but because there's a post-apocalyptic feel to Kurosmaki's Finland, always, ever since the beginning. The film mm. is set in Helsinki, but there's a sense that there are only like a dozen people left in this industrial <laughs> landscape. Okay. It's just the coldness of the environment and the inexpressive nature of the performances who are all doing this very sort of, I hate to say Wes Anderson style because of course Kurosmaki's there first, but that kind of delivery to the, the mm. performance and it makes the moment of emotion again like ozu feel incredibly powerful by contrast mm. you know a little moment a little look or you know a, a slight nod will just mean everything to you and it's very quirky very stylistic but the romance and the feeling of optimism even in the harshest of environments actually feels hard-earned like this isn't cheap whimsy cool. this feels like a, a a truth about humanity that kurosmaki has eventually arrived at and it's quite beautiful for that so yeah Nice. I won't say the star ratings. They're all five from now on. They're all five. They're all five. Cool. Yeah, sounds interesting. Oof. I'd watch it. I think <laughs> you should watch it. I'd watch it. Grismacki, <laughs> yeah, he's one to get into. Okay. Interesting. I think you'll like this one. Yeah. Do not expect too much from the end of the world. Okay. Right. Well, noted. I'll write that, write that down. <laughs> <laughs> this is a fabulous. Based on the title, it yeah. sounds like one I would have picked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think this is good. Yeah, I think so. This is a fabulously and disruptive and chaotic Romanian film mm. from Radu Jude, the director of Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. And uh, this is a similarly madcap journey, this time through vast swathes of modern life, but particularly the gig economy. Okay. Uh, you've got Ilinka Monolaci. Monolaki. Uh, plays Angela and Angela is a PA for a video company working on a health and safety video that is intended to remove corporate responsibility more than it is to actually teach anyone anything hmm. you know if you get hurt it's your fault you should have been wearing a helmet yeah. in the first part she has to drive around and find a model disabled employee who will work photogenically and stick to the company line about the cause of their accident and along the way sure. she makes time for various facets of her own personal life including the recording of these tiktok style videos with a grotesque phone filter she has that makes her look like andrew tate where she then wow. offers these horrific toxic masculinity takes you know in an extreme form these incredibly misogynistic horrible things with you know loads of vulgarities uh that she says is a sort of extreme form of satire by imitation Okay. Uh, which Why? is, you know, only just a tad more extreme than actual sort of incel rhetoric. <laughs> but it's it's really funny. <laughs> She's very good. Um, it also cross-cuts with a 1970s Romanian film about a female taxi driver and the various hijinks she gets into. And Angelo at one stage meets the two actors from that film who have now grown up and sort of formed a real relationship. And it's this great contrast between the gorgeous, upbeat 70s film and this modern Leo Carax-esque, surreal kind of experience mm. we're having. But there's this through line being established between the feisty, progressive protagonist of the 70s film and her modern, more explicit counterpart. There's a, a spirit of rebellion there. And Monolaki is just amazing in the role. The second part of the film, which takes up, I don't know how long, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's just half an hour, it's very hard to tell, because it is one still take, the camera doesn't move. Oh, wow. And it's basically the filming of the, you know, the film that she's cast in the first half, so it just locked down camera, everybody yeah. sat in front of the camera trying to get through this testimony in a way that frames the accident as a cautionary tale and not an expose of corporate neglect. So... 
yeah, it's just this incredibly long, hilarious shot of them trying to get this right, and it's incredible that they managed to keep up the energy and the excitement, and but also captured boredom in a way that it isn't boring, huh. if that makes sense. It's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So as the title suggests, this feels like a post-capitalist apocalypse. Like, what if the end of the world is not an asteroid or an, atom- or, or an atomic war or a plague? What if it's just unchecked capitalism, just enslaves humanity and the last drop of human cre- creativity just withers and dies without anyone noticing? Wow. The idea is one perhaps shouldn't expect too much from the end of the world. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it even happened already. <laughs> interesting okay it's, okay yeah dark funny incredibly bizarre journey through modern romania which is unfortunately becoming very much like everywhere else yeah <laughs> but loved it really loved that great yeah sounds very good didn't expect uve Boll to show up in it <laughs> wow At okay. playing himself that's fun okay How fun <laughs> i think they make fun of him a little <laughs> i don't think he notices <laughs> Uh, I've got to assume if Abel does not understand what that emotion is. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> shame. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Oh, Embarrassment. God. I'll tell you someone who does understand shame a great deal is the Japanese yeah. film master Hirokazu Koreeda. <gasps> Koreeda. Have you seen a Koreeda film? Did you see? No, but you have said the name so many mm. times. I love Koreeda. The... This broker. I know. We reviewed Broker last year and we've reviewed oh, yeah. Still Walking on the podcast. Uh huh. I think I've seen everything. Our Little Sister is my favourite of his, I think. Mm. But I think I've seen all of his films. He made a big splash with Shoplifters a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Mm. He's extremely good. And this is the new film, the first Japanese film since uh, then, because, of course, uh, Broker was Korean. Um, yeah, it focuses on a boy who has started behaving strangely. He has bruises, okay. he's emotional, and he keeps disappearing. Uh, we experience three perspectives on this case. The boy's mother, the boy's teacher, and finally the boy. Um, we know we've travelled back to the beginning of the story because there's a big fire that happens in a tenement block so we mm. go back to the fire so it's a, a Rashomon, star, Rashomon style multiple perspectives thing going on with consistent events grounding you in the timeline but it's very natural and intuitive what they're doing you know it makes sure that you're going to remember certain moments you know each time by having mm. a memorable line or a big event or a camera angle you'll know where you are cool what it affords is the opportunity to have your assumptions challenged. You're encouraged to relate very intensely with the characters at each stage of the story and to really believe what they believe. You know, thanks to the wonderful performances and the incredible writing, only then the next story happens and those sympathies shift entirely. You know, and you mm. believe that this other character is actually the villain and this other character is actually the hero. And it's consequently just a really beautiful call for understanding. Um, and patience and communication you know all of the troubles here come from secrets which often are quite well justified but stand in the way of the characters actually emotionally connecting and there's a great deal about the pressures of modern parenting the school system uh, and a surprising aspect that I won't spoil here but is very wonderful to see the work of such a mainstream Japanese director handle Wow. Good bit of okay. representation there. Uh, you then have to acknowledge the incredible performances, especially Sakura Ando, who's the mother, uh, Ieta Nagayama, who is the teacher, Yuko Tanaka, who is the principal, and seemingly newcomer from what I can see, Soya Kurakawa, as the uh, son. All of them so natural, so fun together, and a great deal of the drama of the film stems from how charming they are. Hmm. 
I think one last thing to mention is Ryuichi Sakamoto's score, which shall in fact be his last after he tragically died earlier this year, prematurely. It's a soulful, very human final act by a great musician. Uh, yeah, it's a very ambitious work from Koreeda, narratively, narratively speaking, and it's one of the only times he's worked with um, somebody else's script. Like, I think the last one was one of his first oh. films. Um, and that fact, along with the fact that he did, you know, brokering Korean last year, his first Korean film, and his recent TV work suggests that this is an artist very willing to take risks in his projects. Yeah. And so far, the results have been staggering, and I can't wait to see what he does next. Cool. Very it's, cool. It's very cool. It's just it's so much fun to just be so invested in the first part and think okay i know exactly what this is yeah this is a expose of schools and you know how bad they are and then the second one just oh schools are in a lot of trouble <laughs> oh dear interesting yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes it all depends yes. on your point of view it does that's a movie about point of view mm. let's talk about thomas and mckenzie ah you know thomas and mckenzie from yeah. the uh, leave no trace and uh, Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. She's so good. Uh, she is in Eileen. Eileen? Eileen. Come on, Eileen. Uh, this is William Oldroyd, who directed Lady Macbeth back in the day, uh-huh. uh, creating a very 70s style psychological character study. We've got Thomas and Mackenzie playing Eileen, who lives with her cold, verbally abusive alcoholic father, played by Shea Wiggum. Uh, and she works in a local prison. Uh, okay. Yeah. When one day a glamorous new counselor arrives at the prison, played by Anne Hathaway. Ooh. Thomas McKenzie becomes immediately infatuated with her, and she breaks away from her harsh regimes to explore her new attraction and the ambition and despair that it brings. Interesting. So I guess first of all, this is a gorgeous-looking film. It's it's got that lovely film grain in it and this great autumnal color pla- palette to it. Mm. It's a gorgeous-looking film shot by Ari Wegner. Uh, who did Power of the Dog, Zola, one of the craziest films of that year, True History of the Kelly Gang, In Fabric, and Lady Macbeth. So definitely a sort of cinematographer who likes to leave a, a signature on the films mm. he's, he's shot. You know, they, these are not films where you don't notice the cinematography. Sure. It has this grainy cult feel that creates this hazy dreamlike effect as Eileen drifts from fantasy to reality. Um and the whole thing is grounded in Mackenzie's restrained but deeply expressive and kind of relatable character. I think it's the best she's done since Leaving a Trace, I think. Um, her Boston accent may wander a little bit, but she's fabulously <laughs> Hey, we can't engaging. all be that good as the Boston <laughs> car. Back. Get out of here, you chabron. You see, I can't not have it go New York. Mm. <laughs> and I also... Can't have it yet. Capic. <laughs> Fadi was so classy. I can't do it. Um, yeah, as is Anne Halfway, who is the glamorous promise of a world outside of the small town England, and she's she plays it like an old golden Holly, golden age Hollywood movie star, mm. um, and it's just you know perfect to be everything that Eileen covets, both to be and to have. Ooh, oh, it's a bit saucy. Um, it has this morbid sense of humor as well, and a kind of dark playfulness as you sort of get deeper and further into Eileen's world, and she begins to really find out who she is. But what will you think of who she really is? Cool. Yeah, it's great. It's a really good character study. And again, I just love the chilly autumn into Mm. winter kind of feel of the whole thing. It's a movie of browns and of uh, seeing your own breath. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. At this time of year as well. Perfect. Perfect. I bet they release it in March. 
<laughs> well, we can feel nostalgic about autumn <laughs> at that point. <laughs> oh, God. Speaking of which, the next one, the Christmas movie that is currently slated for a January release. Idiots. Wow. Okay. We've got The Holdovers. <laughs> okay. Which is, again, speaking of 70s throwbacks, uh, this is the new Alexander Payne film, of course, Sideways and all the others. Um, the movie starts with the old Warner Brothers logo and the opening credits sort of work up to evoke this idea of, specifically for me, an old Hal Ashby film. And indeed, the, f- the story okay. feels very indebted to the last detail, uh, especially once they hit the road. Uh, but we've got Paul Giamatti, and I think this is their first collaboration since Sideways. And he's playing a crusty old professor who, once again, has made the choice to live alone um, and is doing so at the boarding school that he himself attended when he was a boy, teaching ancient history to bored rich kids who don't like him very much. And he doesn't like mm-hmm. them. <laughs> and he enjoys punishing them. There's a great early line where he's just like, um, no, sir, you don't understand. I can't fail this class. Well, you, you underestimate yourself uh, because I believe you truly can fail this class. <laughs> he's got that That's great good. sort of yeah old teacher yeah. sort of styling to him which yeah. i like a lot um yeah and then the, the, the whole premise of the movie is over the christmas holidays he is charged with looking over after the holdovers uh kids who are okay. unable to return home for the holidays and so must spend christmas at the school mm. one teacher stays behind and it's going to be him this year uh because he's being punished <laughs> because he failed uh-huh. a kid who deserved to be failed but for political reasons, shouldn't have been. Sure. Um, Angus Tully then plays one such boy who has a rebellious streak. I'm pretty sure Angus Tully is actually the character name. Sorry about that. Uh, plays one such boy, <laughs> is one such boy who has a rebellious streak <laughs> fueled by his dissatisfaction with his home life. It progresses kind of as you'd expect with that premise. You know, the characters are going to come together. They're very different. Mm-hmm. They're going to argue and, you know, fight with each other. And then they're going to achieve a new kind of understanding. But learn from each other learn from each other but it's this first of all the humor really marks it out it's incredibly funny it really had the festival hall crowd going hmm. it also got some sniffs and round of applause on certain emotional beats so oh. you know it definitely works for a crowd um but it has this gentle morose mood you know of the film like i don't there's a genre of christmas film here that it's tapping into the sort of slightly sad one hmm. where the characters are cozy in a way that you enjoy watching but in such a Grinch-like, I guess is kind of what's going on Um, Paul Giamatti is fabulous, he's the stuffy old professor but incredibly charismatic due to his dry sense of humour and avuncular manner I just find Mm. him very uh, enjoyable to watch Mm. Uh, Devine Joy Randolph is uh, great as the only other member of staff kept on over the winters she's dealing with the loss of her son in Vietnam uh, which at its worst does reduce her to being a bit of a device to contextualize the other characters sure. suffering sort of you know real problems and you know she's a black woman uh, you know sort of character so there's a bit of reduction going on there in terms of her inner sure. life but she is excellent as a foil to the male cast whilst also being a really good character in her own right you know just being able to mm. completely dismiss people around her with the right noise is very good um Dominic Sessa, there you go. He arguably steals the show as the uh, the aforementioned teen uh, who stays behind. He's wild and unpredictable without feeling cliched. He plays hurt and betrayed and arrogant and annoying really well. Um, he has wonderful chemistry with Giamatti. And yeah, all of the film's best sequences are just the two of them together talking and yeah, getting to know each other. 
Yeah, and what I like best cool. is that it's just a character-driven seasonal comedy. And the first film I've seen in a long time that actually feels like it could become traditional viewing. Like, I can imagine doing this every Christmas because Ooh. there's a lot of rich character work That's here. Fun. And I just look forward to revisiting it. And its location, this boarding school, this closed-down boarding school at Christmas, mm. is just... It's got really good Christmassy vibes. Don't release it in January. Great. <laughs> For the love of God. Yeah, bring yeah, bring that forwards a little bit. Please. <laughs> okay. Please. Next up, something a bit more somber. Close your mm, eyes. Sombre. Sombre. Okay. Interesting you should say that. This is a Spanish film. Ah. Yes, yeah, a new film from Victor Irici. Uh, a man who directed his first film in 1973, and it was one of the best films of all time. Second film in 1983, and it's one of the best films of all time. Ten years later. Mm-hmm. Third film, ten years after that, 1992. I haven't seen it, but it's meant to be a very, very good film. And now comes at <laughs> us with his fourth in 2023. So four films wow. in 50 years. And wow. each one, by many accounts, a masterpiece. And I think this one joins that pantheon. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. We start with this gorgeously seductive sequence in the rustic splendor of an old manor where a young man is recruited to travel to China to find a rich man's daughter <gasps> as he's being concerned with his uh, legacy and his old age and he wants to see his only living blood. Uh, and we see the man leave, charged with grim purpose and the promise of uh, uncovering hidden truths and the film stops dead in its tracks. A voiceover okay. explains that this is a film and that the actor playing the young man, uh, Julio Arena, disappeared before the film could be completed. And then, yeah, what we're seeing is basically a true crime kind of disappearance story that is being is a documentary that's being made with the participation of the director of that film. Uh, and the he is the main character of our film, um, because, yeah, he participates in this documentary that may reveal the truth about the actor's disappearance. Mm. it's a staggering film really the the scope of it is really wonderful spanning these decades and really making you feel the weight of that time it has this um elegaic sense of an ending but then again all of Irichi's films kind of had that there's always been a sense of looking backwards with nostalgia but in the literal sense of the word you know the, mm. the pain of remembering of nostalgia like when the director sure. does end up confronted with the decaying evidence of his past it's a really moving interaction you know and has this gorgeous eye for detail you know the the director has given up on filmmaking and shunned modern society but set himself up in this really sweet little hermetic uh community uh, that is beautifully rich and drawn he's got this cool boat that he lives in on dry land cool you know the boat's been moved in and he's got like tents and things that expand it and it's just a very cool kind of space that he's in but then he's drawn back into the sort of yeah the the world it's beautiful sets beautiful locations just a stunning looking film as well as just having all of these layers of meaning and this could end up being the last Irichi. um you know too many possible lasts in this festival <laughs> i think the yeah. the pool of great filmmaking talent is getting a little old unfortunately um, no. But yeah, considering the speed at which this guy makes films and his advancing age, I think he's 83 now. Um, yeah. We may not get one in uh, 30 years time. <laughs> uh, yeah. But if it is, if this is his last, then it's a gorgeous send off to one of the all time great filmmakers. Um, and I don't know, the, the festival didn't tr- quite treat it with the fireworks I would have expected from a man who directs a movie once every 10 years and it's always a masterpiece. So mm. yeah, I think this deserves a lot more recognition because 
all four of his films. Well, the two I've, the three I've seen have been absolutely mm. staggering. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Cool. Oof. We're going into something a bit edgier. <laughs> the Royal <laughs> Hotel. Something okay. a bit more lively. We have Kitty Green's, uh, Australian filmmaker Kitty Green's follow-up to the provocative The Assistant. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is essentially a remake of Wake and Fright, one of the most unsettling films ever made, and this is a worthy <laughs> successor to that. Uh, Julia Garner and Jessica Hennick play two American women on holiday in Australia. Uh, they run out of money, sure. and so have to take a job working oh, no. in the middle of the outback in a rundown pub that's the oh, no. focal point of a tiny male-dominated mining town. Uh, the place is owned by mm. uh, Hugo Weaving, who, yeah, runs the place in a very haphazard, chaotic manner because he himself is dealing with uh, alcohol addiction, amongst other things. So the menace of the film is the creepy ambiguity between genuine threat and just being around Australian men. (laughs) Or Australians in general, really, because the women are also quite upsetting. (laughs) It's about that unsettling feeling of feeling threatened and not knowing if you're actually in danger, or if you're being unreasonable, or if you're being gaslighted. Mm. It's a film entirely about male attention, and is tremendous at creating and maintaining tension. Uh, Garner is amazing in the lead, as are various men who sort of play the bar patrons, who all know how to ride that line between lads being lads and being genuine threats. Mm. Um, Green doesn't neglect the humanity of these men she just kind of immerses you in the experience of the overwhelmed lead character who is constantly just we're we're made to be sort of terrified along with her and Jessica Hennig is there to basically also be a kind of chaotic force who is way more relaxed about the situations they're in Mm. and that's you know when you're in a situation where you're afraid the worst thing your friend you're there can do is just be completely fine (laughs) Yeah. Because she's just like, yeah, I'll go off with these guys. It's fine. You need to be less uptight. And it's like, you're going to die. You're obviously going to die. It's supremely unnerving as an experience that does something to invoke the discomfort of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but without wow. without the tension relieving psychotic episodes of violence. <laughs> okay. That really, you know, releases the tension when that happens because it's like, oh God, what are we supposed to be afraid of? Oh yeah, the guy with the chainsaw. In here, there is yeah, no yeah, guy yeah, with yeah. a chainsaw. You're just unsettled the all the time. The guy with the chainsaw is- society the guy with the chainsaw might just be in your head and that's that's the Mm. most frightening thing you're just left wondering where the threat is going to come from right up until the explosive finale so yeah it's (gasps) masterfully put together chainsaw comes out snakes actually come out oh okay yeah it's quite something (sighs) now the next one actually we're not going to get into okay it's killers of the flower moon oh yes it's here in the rankings that clearly indicates i like it a lot there's a lot to say about it, uh, but because it's actually already out in cinemas, we might just cover it in the next gen and the film critic okay, as a regular release enough. because it's already out. And sure. suffice to say, it does deserve this place in my list. I think it's incredible, compelling, terrifying. Mm. Has career best performances from DiCaprio and perhaps even De Niro, certainly from this century. Wow. Certainly best De Niro this century. Lily Gladstone yeah. deserves all of the accolades that she's getting. She is incredible this is this isn't her career best because that's certain women but she is um she is fantastic mm. in this and the ending does so much to explain where the film is coming from and there's a lot to be talked about with the controversy of the film and yeah it's a fascinating sure. sort of talking piece um okay. but yeah more on that great next jen and the film critic great okay 
Scala. Scala. Sounded like a a train coming from a station for, for a tunnel. Scala. <laughs> uh, this Scala. <laughs> Uh, this is an adaptation of one of my favorite books, the one that you saw on my Ooh. coffee table, <laughs> the, uh-huh. the giant yes. Scala book by Jane Giles, uh, who directs uh, with Ali Catterall. Uh, together, they present the history of the Scala Cinema, an infamous London uh, venue that specialized in programming films that you could not see elsewhere, and it earned a reputation for being quite unruly. Mm-hmm. It was located in the middle of King's Cross when King's Cross was at its roughest, and it soon became known as the Sodom Odeon. <laughs> uh, not without good cause. Um, the documentary explores the programming efforts of the Scala, the attempts to be alternative and challenging, but also the ways in which it became this mecca for countercultural sort of uh, crowds and ostracized communities, and ended up becoming an important cultural force that influenced all sorts of artists in their work. Um, obviously it's very funny recounting the various misadventures that went on in the smoke-filled auditorium Um, there's a great feeling of punk-fueled anarchy to the proceedings Mm -hmm. and the impression that all of this is very much happening in opposition to Thatcher's government and kind of deliberately to irritate the establishment which does make you wonder where the great counterculture of the last 10 years has been you know, now that we have Tory-fueled destitution and yeah. societal op- oppression again, I'm not saying trans people should start wearing heavy boots and taking to the streets and <laughs> gangs to beat up fascists. I'm just implying that. <laughs> I'm just saying it would be cool. I'm just saying do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying it's a good look and it would be cool and I'd applaud it. I'm just saying that's what the 80s was all about, wearing big boots and kicking people in the face. Bring it back. Fascist specifically. Yeah, fascist specifically. But, you know, if you can't find a fascist... <laughs> Find, find someone with short hair. Uh, <laughs> Just kick him. Kick him. Give him a kick. Uh, the film also features testimonies from uh, staff and attendees, including the brilliant Helen DeWitt, uh, one of my professors, um, Alan Jones, John. Teacher's Pat. I know, right? Uh, John Akinfra, uh Adam Buxton, Stuart Lee, Isaac Julian, Kim Newman, Ben Wheatley, and John Waters shows up very memorably to talk about how his films had a of course they were big all there. relationship. Yeah, <laughs> his, his films had a big relationship with the uh, with yeah. the Scala. I'm actually a little worried. It got revealed that uh, the BFI is going to be doing a Scala season, where they're going okay. to exhibit films that would have been shown at the Scala. Films like Thundercrack, which is a okay. film with which features hardcore pornography within it. Um, interesting <laughs> it's very interesting I just don't think the BFI is the venue for that it's too respectable too Paul, middle class just bring yourself a bag of poop <laughs> um, and a cat this is your advice for and, all of my ventures and then proposition someone in the toilets and it'll be just like the original <laughs> Scala that's true it's about transforming the space into what you need yeah <laughs> oh god I, I don't know if I would have loved the Scala or hated it <laughs> what they talk about the mm. thick cigarette smoke filling the place because you could smoke in cinemas then and the sexual and drug related activities happening yeah. in the back <laughs> I think I like the romantic idea yeah, of right. the punk lifestyle but I want to experience it from a distance it's like a bohemian lifestyle isn't it <laughs> yeah 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 but yeah. living in poverty on a canal boat oh yes please but can I still get crisps when I need them because I do like crisps 
yeah can I have a cappuccino though and a bed all to myself yes. and it's warm and cosy and I'm never in danger yeah that'd be good okay great great, 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 great I'm a bohemian great 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 great, great, great. <sighs> I read an article recently about um, an estate in Manchester that used to just be this big it became it was a failed council estate uh. and it because the building quality was awful mm. and it became this like place where people made music and, <gasps> and there was love. And love, and there was like, you know, people would do punk. It was just so punk and cool and crazy. And I'm like, yeah, so cool. And then you hear them being like, yeah, also, you know, people used to just come around and beat people up. Yeah. And there was raids and you lost it. We just kept getting robbed. Yeah. I'm like, not cool. I don't want to be there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be able to go to a travel lodge. <laughs> when would I have ever gone to a rave? Ever in my life, yeah. raves are it may, raves still exist. I don't want to go to one. Well, exactly. You know, I think I'm quite. <laughs> happy in twenty with years' the... time, they'll be looking back and being like, "Wow, what a punk transgressive <laughs> scene that was." I'm like, "Yeah, I had the opportunity. I didn't want it." Yeah. I think that's. <laughs> I know myself. Fair. God, it's yeah, it's beautiful mm. for what it suggests, which is that a cinema yeah. can be more than just a method of delivery for a product. Which is, yeah. unfortunately, what cinema feels like nowadays is Hollywood makes a product and you go and purchase it from your local dispensary. Sure. But instead, it could be a crucible for ideas and identities that can create a powerful sense of community and offer inspiration for the artists of the future. It's, actually, it's an exhilarating idea of what cinema could be. And in this age of streaming, where even the multiplex is threatened, I think this is a desperate plea for the survival of these places and i think a big part of it you know as paul schrader says is you've just got to cultivate a good audience because that's what mm. you had in the 70s it wasn't better it wasn't better filmmakers it was a better audience be a good audience yeah. folk and go see all of these films i've just said <laughs> <laughs> yeah do it do it it's an order oh god how many left one two three four four <gasps> nearly there and ironically, with the next one is the end we start from. No, okay. No. We're <laughs> not starting again. The beginning at the end. <laughs> a terrible flood strikes London, forcing a new mother to head to the north, where obviously things get worse. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> she ends up moving from one seeming source of shelter to another, as all of the institutions and personal connections that she assumed would save her begin to crumble, and she finds herself <gasps> fighting for her life and the life of her newborn baby. This has the Scouse woman in. Oh, is she Scouse? Jodie Comer. Jodie Comer. Oh, I didn't know she was Scouse. She's from Liverpool, isn't oh, she? I, she's doing... I don't know if she she speaks the Scouse oh. accent, but she's from Liverpool. Oh, fun. I think she does have a bit of You have Scouse. to drop anyway. that when you get to Rada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jodie Comer. Yeah, yeah. She's a, yep, she's in a... We have ba- yeah. the directing talent. We have uh, Mahalia Bello, directing a script mm-hmm. by Alice Birch, adapting the novel by Megan Hunter. Um, And all three of whom were present at the screening I attended and they talked about how the film was influenced by their experiences of motherhood, many of whom experienced this during the production process of the film. So, Ah, interesting. Yeah, very. So they all have this sort of shared experience, which definitely sort of makes itself felt. You know, this is a film Mm. about motherhood by people who know, you know, and the idea of an apocalypse being experienced by a character sort of, you know, with child yeah. it makes it a very yeah. fraught thing but it doesn't it also doesn't shy away from the sort of beauty of that connection um and it has this ethereal quality to it like the opening sequences in which she gives birth at the exact time the sh- uh the um wait the the, the tidal wave hits the flood starts mm. so you've got this incredible thing of her water breaking and fo- you know with the window downstairs mm. breaking with the water and it's 
it's so poetic. It's quite st- wow. uh, striking. Um, central performances are Jodie Comer, Catherine Waterston, and Joel Fry, uh, who are all incredible and bring a lot of nuance to their characters. The relationship between Comer and Waterston becomes the kind of heart of the film in the last two thirds, and then you have these one-off cameos that I won't spoil here because some of them are genuinely surprising, um, <laughs> but they do not distract from the narrative. They enhance the characters they're playing. Okay. I think perhaps reading about it, I expected something like The Girl with All the Gifts, which was fine. It was very good, but it was a very British apocalypse movie, by which I perhaps mean a little cheap feeling. <laughs> We're out of biscuits. We're out of biscuits, no! I don't want to no. live. Ah, he just oh, swallows the gun he's got. <laughs> Not now. But no, this belongs up there with um, actually the somewhat rich UK doomsday history that we have. Movies like Children of Men, 28 Days Later, maybe even Fred's, although nothing is as bleak as Fred's. Don't watch Fred's, people. It's too (laughs) too scary. Um, Yeah, but it's up there in terms of artistry, technical eloquence in presenting this apocalyptic world and, you know, how it works. But what marks this out is a robust sense of hope. Because it mm. never gets senselessly dark. It's always believably, you know, upsetting mm. in terms of how people would actually react to this sort of thing. There's never a moment where suddenly, you know, Mad Max happens. It never gets <laughs> as dark as anything like that. But it feels all the more convincing for its portrayal of everyday panic, evil, and love. So, yeah, I was really staggered by this. I mean, it's all... Oh, no, it... I was going to say it's going to be one of my favorite British films of the year, but I just saw what's up next. <laughs> yeah, but it can still be one of your favourites. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely yeah. Film. It could easily be my second favourite British film of the year. After the one that's coming next, which is <laughs> All of Us Strangers. All of Us Strangers. Yeah, this is Andrew Hay, uh returning from forty five years and lean on Pete. Uh this is the story of Andrew Scott. He moves into a building, he's on his own, he- something has happened, oh, he's clearly mm-hmm. sad and very alone, and then suddenly he notices his hot neighbour played by Paul Mescal. Mm. Mm. And the two of them start a bit of a tryst which is incredibly horny. Um, <laughs> but Scott has got things going on. Specifically, I don't know how much of this film to spoil, but he returns to his hometown where he has a kind of magical realist encounter. Very reminiscent Ooh. of Petite Mama, if people have seen that, okay. the uh, Celine Schirmer film. Um, yes, magic starts to happen. And okay. you start to realise there's a lot more to this situation than we thought. Or maybe this is all happening inside of his head and he is rectifying himself against not really getting to have the closure with his parents that he hoped for. His parents being played oh, brilliantly okay. by Jamie Bell and um, uh, Claire Foy uh, plays the mum. And oh, it's very hard to... Uh, the, the, the film is based on a novel by Taichi Yamada. And my limited experience of Japanese novels does make that make sense. You know, my reading of mm-hmm. like... Um, sure. Uh, God, uh, Murakami, you know. It has that kind of feel, and a few others that I've read. It has that kind of feel of sort of whimsical, slightly magical uh, explorations of loneliness in particular. Mm. This very much has that feel. Um, It's a gorgeous, beautiful looking film (laughs) that is also a little bit terrifying in places. Um, It's not afraid to sort of go Andrew Scott in it. Of course it is. (laughs) Yeah. Andrew Scott is so lovely. He's so... He's so lovely and he has a wonderful wildness behind yes. his eyes. He is excellent he, for his acting. He translates this into a sort of frenzied sadness. Like yeah. any moment he might just start crying. <laughs> There's just yeah. this this beautiful sense of hurt. And Paul Mescal is playing all the warmth in the world and just mm. the most humane. Because in previous things, I found him to be a little bit intimidating. He's always got a little <laughs> bit of a sort of... Uh, 
f-boy energy to him sure a little bit but in this it's all gone maybe it's the 70s styling because he's got like a mullet and a mustache but he suddenly just seems <laughs> nice. like the most warm-hearted person you would ever meet in your life um yeah this is an extraordinary film that only perhaps people will accuse it of becoming overly sentimental particularly in its third act when it sort of ventures even further out but mm. oh i was in tears several times during this yeah. film it's incredible wow it's one of cool. the warmest experiences of the year and it may end up actually ranking higher than the other two films that we've got left to talk about but interesting oh, what was it called again all of us strangers all of us strangers which is a beautiful mm. sentiment also the use of music you'll ne- i'll never hear um even though it's been used so often i'll never hear um the power of love in quite the same oh. way the frankie <laughs> goes to hollywood one sure just oh god tremendous i can't recommend that one highly enough great oh okay two left and they're the big ones. Well, all, I think okay. these three have been the big ones. Sure. Okay. Zone of Interest. Zone of Interest. This is Jonathan Glazer. His fourth film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's made uh-huh. his a bit quicker than Victor Arici. Um, okay. The other films were Sexy Beast, uh, mm-hmm. Birth, Under the Skin, and now Zone of Interest. And Under the Skin is a you know, similar thing because Under the Skin was an adaptation of the novel by uh, Faber. Uh, this is an adaptation of a Martin Amos book in the same way, i.e. Mm-hmm. he took the central idea and then just spun off with it. Sure. The book is about a guard or a worker in a household of a Nazi commandant at Auschwitz who then falls in love with the commandant's wife. And I haven't read it, but from what I read of the synopsis, that seems fairly straightforward. This movie is entirely just about the household of a of the commander of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hoss, uh, whose perhaps is a pronunciation of the O. It's terrifying. It's entirely within this household. It is the the term "the banality of evil" was coined to refer to um, Eichmann on trial in 1962, Um, Mm. but it really suits the energy here because this is ultimately it's it's about this household where they're sort of living there they're having these calm chats they're living their normal lives they're gardening but right behind the wall is the mm-hmm. holocaust in full swing sure. it's full swing auschwitz ten thousand people a day yeah um and it breaks in in these horrifying little moments a coat is brought for the wife and you understand this is a coat that's been confiscated sure uh, the boy is playing with teeth that he just Ugh. has like there's these little moments and these odd little dream sequences and glazer is not interested in showing you the horror he's not interested in showing you the gas mm. chambers or anything like that because you've seen it you're used to it you know it you know he is yeah. absolutely going to hold it all back and make you feel it through his use of direction every so often there'll just be a red screen you know with nothing mm. or some sort of interrupting kind of noise or just mika levy's tremendous soundtrack this is the most disturbing film I've seen about the Holocaust, and it's likely to get a PG rating. <laughs> wow. PG-13, okay. I think they're talking about in the States, so maybe a, a 12 certificate here. Um, but yeah. you, you have 12A, to... 12A, perhaps. God, you have <laughs> to put it up higher than that, because it's about the atmosphere. You yeah. Know, it's, oh, it, wow. it is extraordinary. Christian Friedel plays Hoss. Sandra Huller is his wife there terrifying Mm. both of them because you just throughout it you want the tension to erupt you want the events that are happening right next door to break through that wall and make themselves felt to these complacent indifferent people but they won't because not because of how powerful the walls are but because of how powerful the will is of the people to remain ignorant if it suits them 
And sure. in so being, it is absolutely a sort of calling out. And, you know, mm. obviously Glazer made a comment about how appropriate the story is for this time. You know, this the screening happened literally, I think, a couple of days after the whole, you know, Israel-Palestine thing erupted again. Mm. Or arguably just continued to erupt. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very timely and terrifying. And all about the sort of human instinct to be complacent um, and ignorant. Yeah. And yeah it's staggering near the end it borrows something from the act of killing a sort of certain act but it's it was the most horrific part of that film and it still works very effectively here and then (laughs) oh god just everything about the ending it's extraordinary i really it's bizarre i can't wait to see it again just because i want to be absolutely hit by the power of this cinematic portrayal again it's an yeah. experience like no other, and I think it is one that people crave for. It's not one that's going to offer easy solutions or any kind of traditional narrative. It's just, it's like the boy in the striped pajamas if they never cross the fence. Mm. Mm. You know, it's just, yeah, incredible. Ooh. Blimey. Ooh. <sighs> and that one was called? The Zone of Interest. Zone of Interest, okay. Last one. Yeah, a film I need you to see more than any other film this year. Really, you need to see this. <laughs> okay, more than more than more than uh, the theatre camp one. <laughs> oh, more I do than... want you to watch that, but no, I need you to see this more. I okay. Katie saw it with me. I think it's her favorite film of the year. Wow, it's mine. I think <laughs> we'll okay. have to see how it turns out. Wow, that's up against some stiff competition. Yes, it is. It's poor things. Oh, the Lanthimos. Lan- yeah. Yes. Yorgos Lanthimos. The Yorgos Lanthimos film. Screenplay by Tony McNamara based on the novel by Alastair Gray. Um, of course, it should have been. Th- I should have seen this coming. I don't know why I hadn't noticed you hadn't said poor things. Seeing yet. things coming is very much the theme of uh, poor things because <laughs> this is an incredibly erotic adventure. Basically, what we have is, and it's not going to sound it when I describe what it is. <laughs> um, Emma Stone plays a very unusual young woman. Who has had? Mm-hmm. Who has seemingly been created in some way by Willem Dafoe's mad scientist? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, she is has the mind of a child, even though she's in a full grown uh, sort of woman's body. But she is maturing quickly, and the movie sort of charts her development from being this sort of childlike, bizarre creature to this uh, very adult, bizarre creature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Emma Stone okay. keeps that sense of the uncanny in a way that I can't compare to anything else. I can't think of any similar character that's as endearing, mm. as <laughs> hilarious as this. It's, oh, it's so, Pinocchio. It's like a deranged Pinocchio. The whole thing is really, especially sure. with Willem Dafoe's kind of um, Geppetto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just thinking of moments from it. It's going to be very hard to talk about. Um, it's Lanthimos, so you know what you're getting. You know you're getting a sort of h- hilarious, bizarre, dark, but weirdly erotic um, mm. story. Mark Ruffalo is also in the movie with a bizarre British okay. accent that sounds very much like the accent <laughs> that um, Russell Brand was trying to do for Death on the Nile. It's <laughs> okay. absurd and it has people laughing, but that's kind of appropriate because he is a ridiculous man. Sure. Um, he kind of whisks her away to a, a world of exotic adventure um Mm. and yeah we see her travel from sort of london to paris to uh i can't remember the city they end up in but there's various cities around europe which are realized in this absolutely fascinating style that feels like a sort of 60s psychedelic art style um Mm. that is 
very unique. I've heard people talk about Johnny Depp, not Johnny Depp, sorry, um, Tim Burton. Ah, uh, uh, Tim Burton. And lump the yeah. two together. They talk about <laughs> Tim Burton. Both kind of spooky, both got something to do with what's-her-face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> both a little unsettling now. Um, yeah. yeah. So you've got you've got that aesthetic. Terry Gilliam as well is up in there. But it's so unique mm. and so beautifully realised. Um, yeah. And it's just about the sort of evolution, all in complete, entirely rounded within the experience of watching Emma Stone's performance um, as she sort of rockets you through this narrative. Um, it is ultimately a film about female empowerment, about sexual liberation, mm. all of these things, mm-hmm. having been directed by a man and written by two yeah. other men. So I'll be curious to hear, <laughs> you know, Katie says it holds up and it's very much sure. the case, but I will be very curious to hear what people have to say about the authenticity of it. But from my admittedly limited uh, perception, it is just enthralling. And I love how, I don't know, poke you in it. Like, it reminds me of sort of Easy A in that sense of yeah. just, you know, taking control of sexuality and sure. being unashamed. Speaking of Emma Stone, um, and oh, yeah. being unashamed of it. It's um Yeah. Wonderful. It's just incredibly delightful. I'll probably have more to say about it after you've seen it. We can have a talk about it. But January I think so. I think out? it's yeah, got pushed so, yeah. to twenty twenty four because of the uh right actors strike. Sure. So Fair. yeah, they're holding it back. Because I do think yes, you want I, I want this movie to have every chance at succeeding. Sure. And if that means mm-hmm. you have to get the actors on the red carpet to get people out, fine. Let's wait. Yeah. Because this yeah. deserves to succeed. I need Lanfamos to have a blank check on what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Great. Oh, but you know what? The most exciting thing about LFF is that there's still so much for me to look out for. I didn't get to see The Sweet East, How to Have Sex, mm. Evil Does Not Exist, Saltburn, The Beast, Youth, Bracket Spring. Uh, and the breaking, uh, the breaking uh, one word into two words trilogy because there's hit man in camera and stop motion. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I feel truly thrilled to have experienced as much as I did. I think I have thirteen strong contenders for my end of year top ten. Uh, wow. Yeah, and I just I'm in a very happy place regarding the future of cinema right now. That was Aww. a great fest. Yay. Yay! Happy Paul. Happy Paul. Happy, happy cinema Paul. boy. Happy cinema boy, Yay. my happy film crit, my happy film critic. Yay. Who's my happy film critic? This guy. It's you. There's so um, much nudity in poor things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unconventional nudity too. It's like it's a there's a bit of a celebration of bodies going on in there. Oh, and the um, uh, scary lady who uh, she's not a scary lady. She, the lady who played the witch in Macbeth is back, and she's so good again. <gasps> I have to learn her name. You you saw the tragedy of Macbeth. You remember the creepy? I did. Uh, yeah, witch yeah, lady. yeah, she was fantastic. She's so good, and she's in this, and yeah. it's hilarious. And oh god, there's also it's just a very quotable movie. I think I think it's going to be one that uh-huh. people quote. Fun. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited to see Yay. it. <laughs> Yay! Amazing. Um. Can I tell you about the one film oh, that I watched on the press? Please. But it's it's on your press accreditation, so I don't know <laughs> what if do you, you want mean? to advertise to the world that I watched <laughs> watched it via your cre- press accreditation. You mean your own press accreditation that you got? My, yeah, I, sh- oh, I mean, yeah. I should. I do press. <laughs> you do? You now, are press. Sort of, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, I watched one film. What did you watch? Um, there's not that many available relative. True. A, this seems like there's a lot, but a lot of them are short films. Yes. So I watched a couple of short films. Ah. And I watched one um, without going through all the options. There's a f- quite a few um, of the ones that are in the um, uh, one of the competitions are on there. And oh yeah, some of the competition films are on there. Mm. 
Um, and then um, I just went through, I was like, David, I'm trying a whole new decisiveness thing in my life. So <laughs> I was like, David, I'm going to pick a film. I essentially scrolled down the first, you know, 12 films, saw one that I thought sounded interesting and put it on. Um, and it was called Chroma Kid. Oh, I've heard of Chroma Kid. Yeah. I mean, it was at LFS, so I guess that's fine. <laughs> I've heard good things. <laughs> Yes, it's a film from the Dominican Republic. Ooh. And it's sort of a coming of age film. It folk the main character is this boy mm. um who and it's hard to tell. He's maybe about twelve, I think. Could be a little Yeah, no, he does say his age. He's twelve. Um and his parents are terribly embarrassing <laughs> um magicians who are trying <laughs> to make their own TV show. Oh my god, I love it. Um and I don't really know how much more to say. Weirdly, the plot synopsis kind of gives, tells you what happens, um, one of the major events in it. But that only happens about 50 minutes into this 90 minute film. Oh, wow. So, okay. Or maybe even more. So I don't know whether that's actually a bit of a spoiler, sure. really. I think it's just worth watching. It's You're just following this little kid and his horrible... He's just terribly embarrassed of them. And his parents are so sweet. I love them both so much, especially the mum who's absolutely beautiful. Oh, wow. And it, so it's he's, it's his um, his parents and his mum's dad mm. who after who used to make TV shows um, with his grandma. And then after she died, the parents, he sort of gets obsessed with um, making this very low rent TV show with his magician daughter and son-in-law called Chroma Kid mm. and that the kid is roped into but then they stop doing it they get one you know one season on uh, you know this some TV channel and then that's it and now he's a little bit older and they're giving it another go yeah there is the there's a whole storyline to do with this relationship with um, this other kind of girl at school who's also getting into trouble mm. Um, which doesn't really go anywhere. So I'd like to, <laughs> that's one question I'd like to sort of, you know, ask the directors of like, what what was that supposed to speak to, <laughs> you about? know? It was nice. I liked her character. It was kind of interesting, but it sort of just fizzled away and then nothing really came of it. I kept expecting her to have a more dramatic role or influential role. She, you could cut her out entirely and it would still, <laughs> this film would still make sense. Right. But maybe rewatching it, you'd be like, "Oh, maybe there's a metaphor there." I don't know. I'm I'm the pleb one. I don't have to have thoughts about the deepness <laughs> of this film. Anyway, I enjoyed it. Felt it. like it there was, was a sweet. metaphor there. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, a little funny in moments. It was wonderfully. I really loved the whole sequence where they're filming their pilot for their rebooted TV show. Oh yeah. And it's 80s and it's, um, you know, all this really, it's all focuses around this um, chroma box for doing special effects mm. so that you can do everything against a green screen. Right. And you can make all these tricks seem like, oh, look, I'm making a ball float. When in reality, you know that there's just something covered in green behind the ball, like holding it in the air. Right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that whole sequence is wonderful because it's so trashy yeah. <laughs> like it's just it's just so wonderfully 80s and like low budget and they're just so into it um yeah i enjoyed it i had a fun time that sounds great it sounds an awful like uh, that, think... uh brigsby bear uh movie from a year ago i don't ago. know oh, it, that yeah. was a yeah a surreal sort of comedy drama film about two parents who are making a um uh, a, a children's uh, show in order to help keep their kid sort of uh passive it's yeah okay it was very, interesting. It was very good sort of homemade kind of yeah. thing this is Ooh. more the opposite because they're doing it in spite of the fact he's told them he, he wishes they would stop. And that's, I guess, that's kind of a theme in it. Hey, can um, I, I think by the end, 
Um, Connecting back. But yeah, it's sweet. The director of Brigsby Bear, married to Emma Stone. Ah, oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I don't think I looked up who was... I, you, I had a look. He hasn't... For the names of anyone in... No, don't worry. He hasn't directed no. anything else. But yeah, that, oh, no, that I, sounds yeah. fascinating. Chroma Kid. Yeah. And... Um, it was also nice because the Spanish was very understandable, Yay. <laughs> which is always reassuring <laughs> for someone who's got a degree and 10 plus years of work experience with Spanish to then watch a film and be like, I could actually understand this I'm, maybe without the subtitles. I imagine that's what it's like when somebody mentions a film I've literally never heard of. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, I've wasted my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> certain so it's nice when you hit a dialect i'm like oh gosh i wonder what spanish from the dominican republic's like oh quite understandable wonderful uh yeah lots of wonderful performances the kid's really charming in it despite the fact he's mostly just kind of a bit grumpy not yeah he's just sort of like bummed out <laughs> throughout most of the film um the parents are super charming and the granddad and it's yeah i really i liked it i'd give it four stars Amazing. i enjoyed it good stuff fun little film um, any others yeah and they live in a beautiful little house ah. I love that house it does get commented on at one point in the film by another character <laughs> it's a gem of a little house and I want to live there amazing I don't want to have their little basement studio where I play around play around with <laughs> I want to have their babies and also their basement studio where they film TV shows and play around with funny little 80s machines it's very yeah it feels very set in the time and it's cute amazing um, yeah uh, and then I watched a few short films but I think the the one I liked the best. I wrote it down. Um, bear with. Bear with. Bear with. Is, uh, was called Essex Girls by Yero Timmy Beale. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's a, just a 15-minute film about um, uh, about Essex girls, about girls <laughs> in teenage girls in secondary school. Oh, yeah. And it follows um, this one guy. I can't remember the names of any of the characters, mm. but it follows this uh one girl in particular and how um she's black her two other friends are white she's kind of not she gets on fine with them but then she has this interaction where she and another girl black girl like one other black girl in her class um both end up sort of bonding over a teacher being kind of racist (laughs) but getting away with it and then she ends up like it's about you know she ends up at a party and having these awkward interactions, but then also, you know, and not feeling really awkward. You immediately was like, oh, gosh, I can feel myself in her shoes, you know. Yeah. That's sort of like awkward standing around at a party and then you make a fool of yourself or whatever. Yeah. But then these lovely moments of female friendship bonding in a bathroom and then pulling together. You know, they seem like these girls seem like they might be mean, but actually... I'm sort of just telling you the whole plot, yeah. but anyway. <laughs> it sounds good. It's worth watching because the performances are lovely and you, you really get to... Um, it's it's nicely shot and you just really feel like yeah. within 15 minutes, I just love this main girl in particular. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's about female friendships and about how they're, you know, these girls, they've all, they're all a little bit more to them than yeah. maybe they might seem at first or whatever. But yeah, I love the main love character. That. I'd like to be her friend. Aww. Um, <laughs> I love that yeah, in the movie. Essex girls. Amazing. Good stuff. Yeah. Any others? Cute. Uh, just a couple of other short ones, but that that would be my recommendation. recommendation. And then I haven't got round to watching another long one yet, but I will. <gasps> uh, yeah, I will. I shall. Oh, you have access until Halloween night. I know. Another when week. When the midnight strikes on the Halloween night. Night. Well, great. Yeah. We can talk about it in the great. October uh, Gentleman Film Critic. Yeah. 
which yeah i'm hoping to fit another full feature length film in before <laughs> well, then. well we'll have plenty of time because i've basically spent the whole month at lff or um <laughs> in bradford so i think i'll have like five movies to discuss <laughs> Wonderful. i'm looking forward to that we talked about the creator yeah. already didn't we Yes. God, we're in trouble. <laughs> yes. Well, I, we can still talk about the Eras tour, so. Oh, yeah, great. Wonderful. <laughs> um, great. I think that's going to do it. Cool. Yeah. Smashing. Wow. What an LFF. Happy LFF 2023. God almighty, that was a good one. Yeah. I'm I'm gutted I missed it, but oh. hey, I, I, the North has pies. That is something. <laughs> the North does have pies. Um, that is something I feel I did miss out on this year. It's good gen picks. Like I needed more yeah. Arab cinema. Needed more unusual choices mm. from around the world. Yeah. I did start watching a short, but it was a 25 minute long short. Ah. Um, that's uh, an Egyptian Ooh. short. That's like this very slow paced. It's gonna. I think I get a little bit surreal um story called uh i think it's called the goose's excuse mm. <laughs> yeah amazing which at the very least is painting uh you know it gives you an impression of what quiet <laughs> and exciting life in the egyptian countryside can be like right. um i'm interested to see where it goes i'm going to finish watching that but i uh only watched uh, the first half of it before right cool yeah good stuff we'll see mm-hmm. <laughs> amazing all right then. Well, yeah. I think we should let the people go. Should we let the people memory? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, you've been listening to Jen and the Film Critic, a Screen Mayhem podcast. My name was Jen Blundell and continues to be Jen It'll Blundell. And my film Blundell. critic, it will always be Jen Blundell. And my film critic is Paul Salt. Say goodbye, Paul Salt. Memory. memory. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet at us at Screen Mayhem. You can email us at filmcriticpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was by Jacob Blundell, and that just about wraps us up. How about that, Paul? I, I think that's pretty good. And that's a wrap, as they say in the cinema world. <laughs> I know films too. I love the cinema world. <laughs>